Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. Hello and welcome to another episode of I Way with Jamita Jamil, a podcast against shame. I love this guest and I can't believe she hasn't been on the fucking podcast yet considering how much I admire her and how much I align with her and so many different things. I think she's just such an excellent communicator, so raw, so relatable, a fucking excellent writer and voice and activist and human being who has truly put her youth on the line to be able to fight for the rights of others. And in this incredibly personal and honest chat we talk about what that price feels like and things that she regrets things she would have done differently she's just I think a really amazing example of a human being who's on her own journey who's willing to be fallible who seems to be unbreakably strong and who really 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 loves the world who really carries true optimism in spite of some real horror that she's been exposed to in the last few years in particular she really believes in the best of us and she keeps trying to find ways to facilitate it in our society gina martin is my guest this week and she is someone you might know the name because of the term upskirting she's the one who made it illegal for people to take photographs up people's skirts without their consent. And she's someone who raised awareness of this issue and who took on so many misogynists who laughed it off as not a big deal and made people realise the trauma of being violated in that way. And that work led to other work around rape culture and misogyny and feminism and then racism and how it intersects with all these different marginalised groups. And now she's written a book called No Offence, but that is a kind of answer to all of the reductive sentences that people give out when they are trying to diminish your argument for equal rights. So it could be bigotry or misogyny or racism. She and a bunch of other fantastic activists, some of whom have been on this podcast, have written these brilliant essays that are an eloquent and thorough response to people who can't be bothered to do the work or who don't want to do the work because they don't want to see change and they say infuriating and reductive things in response to maybe your passion or fight for equal rights for everyone. She's just so clever. She puts things in a way that make them feel so accessible and she really makes you just feel so galvanised to get up and fucking fight and change the world and do it from a place of love, not just for others, not just for this planet, but also for yourself. I think she's a sobering and intelligent and kind human being and voice and a much needed voice in our generation. And I really hope you enjoy this chat and you should go and follow her online if you do. But for now, this is the wonderful Gina Martin. Martin, welcome to iWay. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. How are you doing? I'm good. It's stupid that you haven't been on yet. It's just stupid. I know. It's we ridiculous. Both sort of thought I had somehow. I know. I know because it just feels as though we would. I think you're great. I have liked you and admired you for a really long time, and I'm really thrilled that you're here. So thank you for coming. What's going on? How's your health? How's your mental health? Mental health is okay. This week. I've just come back from the UK doing my book tour and 
in the lead up to that, it wasn't so good. And I think that going off without a hitch, especially without any safety concerns, I've come back and my head's like, oh, you're actually okay. Like you're actually cool. So this week's been okay. Mm -hmm. It's been rough the last few months, but this week is going well. And that's all I can do is take it week by week, right? Yeah. Well, well done for it going well. I uh, really enjoyed your interviews. There've been a lot of headlines around you. It's been around some of the hindsight reaction you've had to your work in social justice and how you look back on it with, I think, pride is fair to say, and you should feel proud because you've made a really amazing impact on a lot of people. But um, also a tiny bit of, shall we say, regret in some ways? Yeah. It's hard, it's hard to, to find, find the right word. Exactly. Every word feels too simple for my feelings that are quite complex around it because I have such a complex relationship with my past work. And I think there are many reasons for that. I think the first is that it was rooted in like a traumatic experience that just sucked. And that's what everyone kind of knows me for. And I spent, I mean, it's been how many years now? In six years. And I've been recounting that story for anyone who wants me to tell it for six years. And that's from politicians when I was in Parliament working who would, I couldn't show any emotion because they would undermine me or write me off if I did, to media who would literally go with me into essentially crying on TV, to people I meet who really want like the plot twist. They want to hear how bad the upskirting was so that when you get to the bit about changing the law, they're like, wow, the full circle, the full arc and mm. turning something bad into something wonderful. And I guess at some point it felt like that story wasn't really mine anymore. And I kind of just became known for being upskirted, which just kind of eclipsed everything else I was doing. And that's hard because it was one campaign I did. Yes, it was the most visible and it was absolutely massive, but it was also where I started this work, not where I am now. And my politics is very different to where it was then. In what way? I no longer believe that my time and my effort is best spent creating solutions that come after the harm has already occurred. I don't believe that punitive ways of looking at the problem we have of sexual violence and misogyny lead to justice. I don't think that they create the kind of world we want. And I think at 25 or 26, that was the biggest I could possibly think was like, I'll try and change the law because that to me was stupid. It's like, I'm never going to do that. Obviously, that's never going to happen. I'm never going to be able to finish that. It was massive. And now I've seen so many ways of working in this space that are just so transformative that just blow that out the water for me in terms of how we can actually prevent it instead of just criminalise it after it takes place. Yeah, and it's such a disappointing system that we have for survivors of any of these things that re-traumatizes you but also makes you feel like it was your fault and so I am similarly very into preventative work now myself and actually treating the cause rather than being taught that the symptom is all that we have available to us to try to even begin to challenge. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now listen, we all carry around different stresses, big, small, medium size, and a lot of us keep them bottled up because sometimes we just have to. But doing that all of the time can really, really start to negatively impact your life. And I say that from experience. I'm British. We are told to never say how we're feeling about anything ever. And uh, that's why so many of us are so sad. Now, a way that I was able to remedy that was by having therapy, which was super helpful for me, not only because it's amazing to get things off your chest, but also all week, you know, as you're bottling things up, because it's not always the time or place to say exactly how you feel, you know you're going to get that hour where you're able to get everything off your chest and say it exactly as you want to. And this therapist isn't going to take it personally and they're not going to hold it against you or throw it back in your face during an argument over dinner next week. You just have this complete freedom. Honestly, I think everyone should have therapy, regardless of whether they think they need it, because it's so amazing to have a confidant. It's a journal that talks back to you and helps you with all of your problems. I think therapy is just a safe space to get everything off your chest to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, then maybe you should give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be super convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. All you have to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and then you can switch therapists if you don't like them anytime for no additional charge. 
Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com forward slash iWay today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash iWay. Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. I resonate so deeply with this and I think a lot of us who went into social justice have gone through the mill and come out of it quite different people Mm. and people who don't want anyone else to have to go through what we have been through. And thank you for giving up your 20s to fight for not just like misogyny and upskirting, but like all the things that you've expanded into, but also to... Let other people out there know that this this shit is really not easy. And if you yeah. do want to go into this work, bolster yourself with as many other people at the exact same level as you as possible. Build organisations that you can kind of hide together behind and take the fight on in a way that is more sustainable and leads to less kind of safety issues and burnout. And it's also to say that we as a public who consume the content of people in social justice have a responsibility to be careful with the standards we hold them to mm-hmm. and also consider where we're putting our energy and ways in which we are being supportive other than just critiquing or liking and following and resharing like how are we really meaningfully helping that person make change we need to look at them not as a god not as a saint not as a celebrity but just one human who's a symbol of the work that we all need to do. Exactly. To make a change. That's all any of us should be as an avatar and a symbol of like, here's your reminder that the world's a bit fucked. Please let's all join in. Because we can, no, no one person, no hundred people, no thousand people, no million people can even change this. It has to be everyone. Yeah, I think that recognition of the people that you look to for inspiration on this stuff or guidance or education I think we can put space between us and them and be like, okay, cool. Like, you know, you get lauded and thanked for your work so much. And the only thanks an activist ever wants is for you to pick up and join in. No, none of us do it for the thanks. And though it's lovely to be recognized for the work, it's like the more people that stop saying thank you and start saying, how can I help? That's all we want. That's literally all we want. That's why we're here. There's no good reason why anyone with whatever skill set, whatever experience they have, can't find a place in this work. It's like Tomea Gregory made this piece of art about all the spaces in the climate justice movement for people. And it was like, can you cook? Okay, well, protesters need to be fed. Like, you're good with numbers? Cool. We need someone to, to offer hours up for accounting. Like, are you a designer? Can you make us some posters? Are you a, like, there is always a role in social justice for anyone. And I think because of the commodification of activism, I think a lot of people imagine an activist and go, oh, I've got to be this remarkable person with these types of personality traits. And ultimately, that's a very flattening, commodified version of what an activist is. An activist is just a person who is active and anyone can join. And the only thanks we want is for you to join in ever, I think. I 100% agree. And I'm really glad that you said that. And I think that kind of gets to the, the belly of the beast. So now that you are kind of changing your position as to which area of justice you would like to work on, which is more preventative. Do you also feel as though the way that you engage online has shifted or is shifting? Because I'm becoming, I've talked about it a lot lately on the podcast, more careful Mm. in how I cast out my opinion or my judgment. 
and I'm trying to lead with more grace, love and actual, actual optimism. Mm. Less yeah. impatience and more optimism that incremental change and a bit of grace and empathy and humanity could actually get us somewhere. You know, yeah. you and I have both been slightly pitchfork wieldy in our time mm-hmm. and we've both been criticised for that. And I, I think that's fair. Um, I know where it came from, which is so much rage and frustration and exhaustion and passion that um, came out sometimes in just very blunt declarations online. But where are you at with that? I'm at, well, firstly, I'm at changing the way that I, I had to, I had to shift the way that I live to become more empathetic and considerate and be able to show up in a way in which I can hear people and they can hear me. Because I think I I did this work for a long time because of the very privileged social location that I hold. I think I felt like there's never enough I can do. And if I'm not well, I'm probably doing the work right. So it was like mm-hmm. sort of martyr mentality, which isn't helpful for anyone. No one wants that. Also, then I just spend the whole time in private being like, this work is so hard. I'm such a nightmare. It's like, you could actually just look after yourself and do this work well. And you'll actually be able to walk into rooms and show up to spaces with more compassion, more patience, more time, and with more energy than you would if you were just in this mindset of like run yourself into the ground because you'll never be able to do enough. And to be honest, even if I was running myself into the ground, I wasn't doing it right or I wasn't doing it enough anyway. You know, I have boundaries. I I have a support system around me, both of people who allow me to do this work really well and also people who allow me to do this work really well because they call me in on my bullshit a lot of the time. And what that means is, is like the way I show up online has changed dramatically because I don't see online as an extension of my activism, really. I see it as a vehicle or a tool I can use if I need to, but policing is no longer something I hold that much value on. You mean policing other people? Yeah, policing other people. I think for a long time I felt like, hang on, you as a white woman need to know the women around you and you need to be calling your people in, like you need to be collecting your people, you need to be having conversations with people around you. But I think that positioned me, that was rooted in a lot of exceptionalism and positioned me as someone who could do that and who knew more. And that wasn't necessarily the case. Mm. And so... A few years ago, well, before the pandemic, so like 2020, I guess a year after the law change, it was like, I need to undermine my ego like as much as possible. I don't have a particularly big ego, but I am a Leo. (laughs) (laughs) And like, my job is to undermine my ego as much as possible. That part of me that's like, you know better and you can teach, we can call white people in and you can do it online because like a no nuanced conversations that are going to change people's minds are being had online I know that enough because I have them offline I know what they have to look like for them to change people's minds or even just open someone's curiosity to be able to change their own mind should be what I say and no one conversation online has done that is going to do that it's not built for that and secondarily everything anyone does is visible and therefore you can never be acting without some level of ego because if you say something good you're like everyone can see me saying something good and if you say something bad well, why are you saying something bad for Lily? Like, that's fucked up. That's all the guys that give me shit. I mean, you're just a bit of an arsehole. But there's a there's a social currency that comes from policing online that you can gain. And in 2020, end of 2019, as my platform had grown so much from 2017, I had like, you know, 3,000 followers and I started campaigning and I had like 100,000. And I remember being like, oh, this will trap me. Like, this will ensnare me if I'm not careful with it because the dopamine of it, I can feel like I'm doing this work when I'm just what? Telling someone that they should have used a different word or telling someone that I don't actually think the way that they framed that is is exactly the correct way. I can't be, that's not the work. That's not the work. And that's also shame-based accountability. That's not transformational accountability. That's not how and why did we get here? Where can we go after this? How can you come to healthier conclusions yourself? And you can't do that online. You can only do shame-based accountability really online. And although shame can be a good motivator in very specific circumstances, just have no interest in that anymore because that has never been the work. That's not where my work started. All my work started in rooms with people. So I just don't have any interest in that. And so I've, like you've said, I've taken my hand away from my phone. I have boundaries with my phone. There are so many instances where people will send me stuff and I want to be like, God, I could rip you a new one, but I'm not going <laughs> to. 
I'm going to be frustrated when I go into this call in an hour and a half where I'm consulting with someone. I'm not going to have the patience that I should have. When I walk into a room full of guys and I'm doing a masculinities workshop that I'm training in next week, am I going to have the same patience for the boys in those rooms if I've just spent two days arguing with men online who are misogynistic? No, I'm not. So I'd yeah. rather show up for the people who want to do this work and I'll show up really well than show up for a bunch of people online who don't give a shit and we're never in good faith anyway. Yeah, I remember um, one of the reasons that I became especially famous within the social justice sphere is that I would call out famous people, one of yeah. them being the Kardashians. And I wasn't doing it strategically. I would just see someone do something with loads of fucking power and money who doesn't have to do that, who doesn't need that much money. And I'd just be like, fuck off. Now, what are you doing? That's, that's for the WhatsApp group. That's fuck off is for the WhatsApp <laughs> group. But I did it on Twitter. And I just kept on underestimating because I kept on thinking, okay, well, I've had, you know, my 15 seconds of fame or whatever. It'll be over now. So I can just keep going back to what I used to do, which is always telling everyone to fuck off since I was 19. I didn't realise that it would just keep getting circulated and going viral every time because the media were like positioning me above everyone else and turning mm. everything, every tiny little thing I said into like a fucking headline story. So within like a year of having called out the Kardashians, maybe three or four times ever, I was known as like the Kardashian slayer, which isn't what I wanted oh at all. Because even whenever I would talk about the Kardashians, I was like always like, remember how we got here with them, which is that they were bullied by the world even when they were pregnant. We are the reason for this problem. So let's also not dehumanize these people. Let's just call for these products for weight loss, et cetera, not to be sold. That's all I was ever trying to express. But then every single time they did anything that created controversy, like a, I don't know, Photoshop fail, this, that, and the other, people would pile into my DMs being like, why are you not saying anything? And people yeah. would at me under their deployed. photos. And I was like, hang on, hang on. In 2019, I was like, I'm not the punisher. That's not what I signed up for. A few things happened that I objected to. But if you already know to tag me and to message me about it, then you already know that it's wrong. So then you don't need me. Yeah, but people want to deploy you. Now you're just looking for an MMI fight. Yeah, now yeah, you're looking yeah. for like my Batman signal in the sky. And I was like, that's not what I'm doing here. I don't want to fight these women. These women are victims at large of our society who then go on to, you know, like perpetuate some of the culture. But this is not what, I don't hate these people. I don't want to cancel them. I don't want them to go away. I just want them to, you know, just be careful. Just a bit, bit more responsible. That's it. But that was all I ever wanted to do was raise the alarm for things that no one else was saying in the mainstream. I never mm. wanted to be this sort of like this punitive police officer. We can't be like <laughs> all cops are bad and then go around being cops. Like we've got to be careful. That's so true. I do I do understand. Yeah, Clementine Morrigan is, is one of the people who also says that. And I, yeah, I think it's great. Yeah, I don't think that we have as a culture though, right? We don't have the skills and nuance and knowledge to be able to understand and have these types of conversations with uh, hold four things at once reality mm -hmm. to these conversations, which is what we what, what they require because they're pretty complex in terms of like, these people are a symptom of our society. How much harm are they doing even though they're a symptom of our society? How did they get here? What what are we asking for? How do we... That, that conversation can't happen online. That conversation can't happen in the press. No, because like, of the word count. Because I think you and I both know that that conversation very much so can happen and that people are very intelligent, very emotionally intelligent and empathetic not deep down. And as soon as you're not online and you're able to do that, people can hold 10 things at once. People can hold nuance and context. Yeah. It's just in the way in which it's delivered. And so if you're already working with a word count and you're already, you know, like dealing with the fact that people have got a seven second attention span, don't speak to people the way that I used to online. I was a, <laughs> You've learned. Don't do it. Learning. It's a teachable don't moment, do it. guys. Yeah. Oh, I've been te just teaching this moment for fucking years and then I keep slipping up, you know, every time that Tories do something. Uh, and so, you know, I'm learning. I'm checking myself. It's hard. I'm, I'm, I'm figuring it out. But I think it's a, it's important to remember that people are so much smarter than I think the media and social media gives them credit for. So smart that in fact, it feels like we're almost being guided towards a very binary way of thinking. Well, yeah, I mean, you only have to look at some of the big stories we've had in the past five years and look at the way that we can manipulate people and how they feel about other people. And we can position people in specific ways to make them feel certain ways through the media and social media. And it's terrifying because we are all, we talk about people being radicalised, but I think we are all to some extent radicalised by the media. We are all shaped by our perception of the media. And actually, once you get people into rooms and you start to ask a couple of questions, the walls come down and they and they kind of go, oh, yeah, I, yeah, I don't really know why. Oh, okay, I don't really know why I think that. If you get them in the right scenario, in like a 
in a safe scenario with compassion to talk about stuff, even with friends and family, like people will be like, okay, interesting if they're open and if they're fairly tolerant, progressive people. But you can read, like, even with like my parents or with older people in my life, like they'll read stuff and be like, hey, I read this thing. And I'll be like, yeah, that was one tweet by a guy with four followers that they then made a headline out of. And actually they'd rather be like, oh, I didn't know they did that. That's why you're like, this is terrifying. Like our entire media is being shaped around essentially an agenda to yeah, it's keep trying us to flatten the brain. Yeah, to keep us in specific headspaces that are just terrible for almost every community. So I want to talk about your book, and it's called No Offense But, and it just came out this summer, and it's already receiving a, a positive response because the book falls in line very much so with where your headspace appears to be, which is saying that mm. okay. There are deeper rooted issues beneath the behaviours that upset or harm other people. Let's get into those and let's learn how to ask people questions and hold people accountable with actual factual arguments and, and emotional intelligence. Let's get to the root of the problem. And you've covered, you and lots of other great activists who I love, have covered a myriad of different huge subjects and the arguments that are used to shut those things down. Not even the mm -hmm. arguments, but the slogans that are used to shut and diminish all of those issues. Uh, yeah. Can you talk to me about the book? Yes, I was, I don't know, in the pandemic, I guess, when I wanted to start writing it, it would have been in 2020, end of 2020, early 2021. Essentially every event I've ever done or every in-person anything, I've had people come up to me and be like, how do you respond? Mostly young women, because my work is in mm -hmm. gender equality and misogyny, but women come up to me and be like, how do you respond to this phrase? Because I, I lose it and I, I can't articulate myself. And I know my instincts and I know that it's harmful. And I know that it's not even factually correct, but I don't know how to talk to the person about it. There was also at the beginning of 2021, something I was tussling with, which was what we've just previously discussed, which was, you know, my previous work and a kind of recalibration of where I want my work to be and how, what I actually really believe works. And during those two moments, I was like, okay, I have to be really honest and, you know, where, who my audience are. And I know my audience, I see them at every event. I know who follows me, like they're women who are in their early twenties to sort of forties, mostly white cis women that's who follow me. And that's who I have influence with. And those people are coming up to me asking for me for something. So can I create something in which I can offer to unpick these phrases, 10 of the most common phrases we hear, like you're not all men's boys with boys if you don't want attention, cover up, like please stay here to protect us. Those kinds about institutions and gender equality. Can I unpick those? Can I look at where they come from, the thinking behind them, the impact they make in culture, and then start to frame ways in which to respond and how to have constructive conversations around them. Some of the chapters by the contributors are on phrases that need to be shut down because they're incredibly harmful. Nova Reed writes her chapter on the phrase, I don't see colour, mm -hmm. and writes brilliantly on how we shut that phrase down, why it no longer has a place and hasn't had a place in society and shouldn't have. And then some of them are more complex. The thinking was, can you sit with this book slowly and dig into these phrases as an avenue to understanding these mindsets? And is this a book you could pass to your uncle after you get flustered and frustrated and you don't feel like you can articulate yourself? Can you say to him, can you just read this short chapter? Because it kind of says what I want to say. Can you take prompts? So at the end of each chapter, we have three prompts and three facts, stats to remember or information to remember. Can you use those prompts to open up a conversation around this phrase? Because I just think so much of the language we use and so much of what we say is so indicative of where we are as a society. And the people who are going to pick my book up are people who, are, who live in dominant communities, people with dominant identities. And they have the access to these phrases the most because it's people in dominant groups and communities who are saying these things. So another chapter Kathy Ray writes on is uh, disabled people are such an inspiration, this kind of infantilization of disabled people and this dehumanization of them through this idea of them being inspirational for doing very normal things. And I was like, that would be such a great tool for me as a non-disabled, able-bodied person. Like, could I then use that, that chapter and use Kathy's writing? So when my friend, who is also non-disabled, says that, we can have a conversation about it because then it feels like people in dominant communities are having these conversations, which hopefully means that 
less marginalized people have to consistently tell them people in dominant communities why these things are harmful or why these things need to be reconsidered or you know mm. thought through yeah it's really helpful it's really helpful and it's very clever to take the undermining slogan and pre-empt it and then prepare people for it I think that's really great and a, a really special gift to give to those of us who especially you know when you're dealing with someone you love saying something that you don't like or rejecting your identity or the identity of someone that you care for or a group that you care for it's really hard when emotions get the better of you oh to be God, able so to hard. articulate yourself like god knows you and i have you know had to push through a lot of our own pain to try to mask it and articulate ourselves and and there are times where i just can't and those are the no, times where I have, and understandable. I have messy, spilly moments, you know, online. And it's, uh, I just really wish you'd written this earlier, really. Like, cause I <laughs> Same. could have done with this fucking book in 2017. Well, there we go. That's uh, for you. You've got it now. <laughs> but yeah, I think it's, I think it's really great. And I also really loved your chapter on to play devil's advocate. Mm. I really loved your take on contrarianism. And yeah. how you would uh, combat that. Now, I, without meaning to heavily gender anyone, have found in my personal life that it's almost all men yeah. in my life. Like lovely, liberal, kind men who want the best for everyone, who hope everyone gets their way. They don't do a lot to ensure that everyone has equality, <laughs> but they like it. <laughs> They'll double tap, <laughs> you know. This is the best explanation. <laughs> <laughs> really lovely really care about everyone I haven't done anything about it they're not it. losing sleep over abortion but they really hope anyone they accidentally get pregnant can have one does that make oh. sense yes it does yeah I'm just like <laughs> could you lose a bit more sleep and come help us though like please L truly <laughs> but it's often those mates of mine who end up stressing and antagonizing me the most yeah. in the living room with playing devil's advocate oh man the devil's advocate. Can you expand a bit on that? Because I think a lot of people resonate with people in their life doing that to them. Yes. We hear to play devil's advocate use a lot in response to conversations, I believe, in which cis men can't engage in the same way they can with most conversations. And those conversations tend to be conversations around sexual violence, gender, misogyny. It feels like to be socialised as a cis man in this world is to be socialised into the idea that your voice has innate value and unfortunately not unfortunately it's really actually quite diplomatic and it has had innate value in most rooms that cis men have been in both what they've watched representationally through tv and movies and religious institutions and schools versus the rooms they're actually in there's very few spaces in which cis men go into where they don't have the ability to hold the floor and hold the conversation and be a main character in those moments and i think in conversations around sexual violence gender and misogyny often, not always, but often women and people of mar marginalised genders are coming into these conversations with more context and more passion and are feeling more emboldened than ever to hold space for these conversations publicly in groups of all types of genders. And I think cis men find that really uncomfortable, partly because I think they know on some level that they probably have perpetrated something on the rape culture paradigm or they've allowed for it or they've consumed yeah, yeah. it online and given it power and clicks exactly. and whatever. And, and, you know, on the rape culture paradigm, we're talking about things, you know, people hear rape culture paradigm and they think I'm saying that all men have assaulted people. What we're talking about there is gendered stereotypes, sexist jokes, low level, quote unquote, everyday versions of sexism and misogyny. It would be impossible, I believe, to exist in this society as a cis man and have not perpetrated something on that paradigm. It's what is expected of them. And, you know, all the best men and all the men I adore have done that. You know, many women I know have done that. We live mm -hmm. in a patriarchy. And so in those conversations, especially because of also the, the uh, kind of mainstream conversation around feminism or gender equality that we've been in for the past sort of five to 10 years, I think men and boys can feel like they're instantly seen as a perpetrator in those conversations. And I think they want to distract, move away from that conversation I think it makes them very uncomfortable. And to play devil's advocate is often used as a way to assert some sort of hierarchy in the conversation where the person who uses it is able to offer an alternative narrative, but completely separate themselves from that alternative narrative as if it wasn't their opinion. So you say, oh, to play devil's advocate, maybe he just 
A or to play devil's advocate, do you not think sometimes men this? And then when you try to have a good faith conversation or some kind of constructive debate about it, it becomes very hard because the person on the other side is making very sure that you know that they're not actually attached to their opinion and it wasn't theirs to begin with. And it's very hard to have a debate with someone who is not owning what they're saying. And devil's advocate as a phrase came from the Catholic Church. A lot of stuff came from the Catholic Church. (laughs) Um, A lot of the best stuff. Oh God, Jesus Christ. When I was researching this book, I was like, oh no, so much stuff (laughs) that we just don't even want to talk about. It was used in the canonizing of a saint. So it was a position that the Catholic Church created for an individual. And their job was to uncover flaws about the person or the individual that was going to be canonized as a saint. So essentially their job was to um, create doubt about this absolutely perfect, impeccable being. Now, incredibly ironic in, you know, Catholic Church, history of missionaries, sexual assault and violence used as a weapon in that institution. And then now we have regular, messy feeling people in a regular, messy feeling world having conversations around their experiences of sexual violence or misogyny or um, patriarchy. And we're using this phrase to try and discredit or make a constructive conversation harder for them. And it's so frustrating to me because there's absolutely no place for it in conversations around sexual violence. You know, women and people of marginalized genders who experience living under patriarchy are not perfect, impeccable people who need to be proven wrong in a conversation or need to be, or who we need to cast doubt over. And that's why I think it makes us feel so unsafe when we hear it, or it makes us feel so like we're being, that like, it's almost voyeuristic. It's almost like there's now a Jorah. And now it's like, I have to prove to you why my side of how I feel is now the truth. And it becomes sort of a jury and judge and executioner situation, but it creates this instant hierarchy. And that's why I wrote that chapter, because I wanted people to understand the fundamental root of where it comes from and why it feels so out of place in modern conversations around patriarchy and sexual violence. All the boys I know are getting sent that chapter. Yay. I saw a guy reading it recently and I was like, yes. (laughs) I put it on my coffee table because that's normally around where people start those conversations with me when I really just want to talk about like, I don't know, succession. Yeah, They'll just try and like come up to me and devil's advocate me out of fucking nowhere. And so now I'm just going to slide the book across the coffee table. Yeah, And leave it on the open page and be like, leave that phrase out. Let's just have a chat with you as you, not as you as an advocate for something else. I know. Oh God, the advocate for the devil. Who wants to be that? I know, wild. Look, there's nothing wrong with challenging certain conversations, but I think what you bring up in the book is just ask them why. Why do they feel the need to challenge that? What do they think is going to be the outcome? Uh, yeah. And I think that that's really fascinating and I, I look forward to being able to try it out in the wild. Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Regarding men and regarding some of the things that you've said, even in this chat, where you talk about the fact that we have a society built for them to behave a certain way and it would be very hard for them to escape certain behaviours. Also throughout this book, when you're talking about boys will be boys, there are there is an increase in the empathy with which you talk about men now mm. and mm-hmm. you talk about the cause of their learned misogyny and you are addressing the fact that a lot of their behaviours are learned or are executed without challenge at a young age and mm-hmm. therefore not changed in the way that girls are so policed in our behaviour and boys just aren't. And so 
there's kind of dripped throughout the book, especially like the parts about misogyny, it feels like an increase in that. And I think generally we as a society are still starting to talk more about men's mental health and what men are going through. Catelyn Moran has just released a book, you know, what about men? And so has that been something that you have had a personal, like increasing awareness of? Yes. There's been an increasing awareness of seeing work that by definition is preventative of harm because it's rooted in also including men in this conversation. And I think we can be really quick to, or I used to be really quick to, I should say, define anything that also considers a realistic approach to why men perpetrate this type of behavior or why restrictive masculinity exists as our default. We look at that and we go like, why are we centering men in this conversation? Like stop centering men. And I think there's a difference between centering men and providing necessary context. And for me, it is necessary context to discuss and explore what we would call more colloquially toxic masculinity or this restrictive version of masculinity, the man box, that forces men to perform their gender in a specific way that ultimately harms both them and definitely women and people of yeah. other genders. Interestingly, Justin Baldoni was on this podcast saying that he doesn't even use the term toxic masculinity because he's like, whatever that is, it's not masculinity. He's like, femininity yeah, and, think- and masculinity are these beautiful things that everyone can have regardless of whatever their, whatever gender they identify with, whatever their biological sex. He was like, these are facets of our being that anyone can have and we should call whatever the fuck that is something entirely different. And actually, I think had we thought to do that in the first place, there would be less people who get so upset when you say toxic masculinity because they think we're attacking everything about them that makes them who they are. And actually, it's a very different thing that is very modern and capitalism-based and infused Mm -hmm. that incorporates the behaviours of oppression and violence and harm. Do you know what I mean? I do. I think it's an interesting question of like, how do we create language that allows people to meet this moment and the movement and to be curious to learn more? And how do we ensure that the language we're using isn't ignoring the harm, you know? So it's like toxic masculinity, I don't use it because I don't think anyone knows what it means. I think we all use it to mean different things, which Mm -hmm makes it really difficult. We say toxic mm-hmm. masculinity, we just mean an arsehole. We say toxic masculinity when we, when we mean misogyny. We say toxic masculinity when we mean very specific type of masculinity. And so I just find it causes confusion. I also, in my actual work, not in like, you know, online, but like when I'm with people in the real world doing this stuff, I also tend to not use phrases that they may have heard loads in the media. I will explain the thing first and then I will introduce the phrase later. Because... I would learn this from Richie Reseda, who was like, if you walk into a room of men and you go like, toxic masculinity, they're like, I'm going to get shouted at. Whereas if you go in and you say, did you feel like as a boy, you had to quote unquote, get women, quote unquote, never ask for help, be successful, use dominion in order to assert yourself around other guys? Did you feel like you couldn't talk about your feelings? Did you feel like they'll go, yeah. And then you go, right, okay, well, that is something that as a modern society, we would call toxic masculinity. And they go, oh, okay. But if you say it first, they kind of don't want to have the conversation. Hmm. It's interesting what Justin says, because though I agree with him that masculinity and femininity are just these states of being in which we all have both, we should all be able to pick and choose from them what we feel most suits Mm -hmm. us and our gender, and that'd be much healthier. There also is is a massive reality that masculinity has become toxic or Western, you know, restrictive masculinity in this particular archetype has become incredibly toxic. And so I almost want to use it to recognize that, but I also don't want my usage of it to stop people from joining in and being part of this work, because ultimately the more men we have as part of this work, the quicker this is going to change. So I kind of respect what he's saying. And at the same time, I'm like, but I still want to name the harm, but I don't, you know, it's hard. I I think we just, as I said to him on the day, and he didn't have another name for it yet, but I think we need to work towards finding a new name for that thing, because otherwise too many people think that we're saying all masculinity is toxic. It's toxic. But we're not. We're not. And it's important not to, because I have masculine and feminine traits or whatever the fuck that even means. It means, yeah, exactly. and And I like that. And I, I think it makes 
the people I know who share all of those things, very interesting and and whatnot. I think we need clearer terminology. Generally in social justice, sometimes our need for a quick slogan, a catchy soundbite slogan can reduce and diminish what we're working towards. You are really interested in facilitating. I am. And that kind of goes along with this work. Can you talk to us about what that is? Yeah, facilitating is something that sounds incredibly simple, but is actually incredibly skilled and complex to become good at. I think a lot of people think facilitating is like going into a room and having a chat, which I think they pin on women as well a lot more than they do men anyway. But facilitation, it comes from the Latin word to do with, which means easy. So the concept of facilitation is to create a fertile space in which people can come to healthier conclusions about themselves, the way they fit into society and their gender themselves. Your job is to facilitate that. So essentially what that looks like is two to nine hour workshops with interactive activities, exercises and conversations and questions that start to get people curious about why they are the way they are Mm. and start to get them to think about themselves and their gender in a way that they haven't before. With young people, that's a pretty phenomenal experience because with young people, they tend to, people say they're more malleable, but that to me sounds like we're trying to mold them. And I don't really think that's the case because with facilitation, we're actually not allowed to tell anyone what they think. The best facilitator, you should walk out the session and not be able to remember the facilitator really, like not know anything about them, but just be like, wow, I just had a phenomenal personal experience in there and an experience of connection with other people. So we're not allowed to tell people what to think as a facilitator. Our job is to allow a fertile space for them to grow and leave the other side feeling like they know themselves better. They feel healthier. They feel more open. They feel like they've grown in a way that is better for them and everyone around them. And with kids, they're quite open to doing that. With adults, they tend to try and get the answers right. Right. Well, it is so true that so much of the harm that any of us can perpetrate and do perpetrate comes from the fact that we don't often understand what it is that we're feeling or experiencing. And so we quickly look for a culprit or we quickly Mm. look for an outlet before we've really thought it through. And then we just kind of purge it all out often, most often on the wrong target, in the wrong way. Yeah, and we're we're forced to feel like that. The system we live under doesn't want us to start to excavate these ideas and excavate these feelings. You know, we're kept busy under capitalism. We're laborers. We're not meant to be, they don't want us to be sitting here figuring out our positionality to each other and creating community and connection and thinking about harm in a different way. And, And that's why this work feels so like beautifully rebellious and like radical in that the system we live under really doesn't want us to do it because the more connected we are across, you know, across identity lines, intergenerationally, you know, women sitting in rooms in facilitation sessions of different ages who grew up in a completely different context, even in terms of laws and geographical location or religious and faith backgrounds. And in that room are able to find real levels of connection on their experiences and their feelings and they're able to work together when they leave that room that's the shift dreams like isn't that what (laughs) it's like I want to live in that world and so facilitation offers us a different way to learn about these things and an empowering way to learn about these things because it's completely led by the people in the room and the skill of it the transformation that can happen when you have a really skilled facilitator of which I feel so lucky to know it's a few facilitators I know that I'm like what you do is actual magic. And if people could bottle it, I think the world would be a different place. It's just beautiful to see that. Where do people find this? Where is this happening? How do other people join in? How do teachers who are listening to this invite this into their school? If you look up, I'll just give you one name who I think are the people doing the best facilitation in the country right now in the UK. So that's Beyond Equality. And they do phenomenal facilitation around masculinities. They work in schools, universities and corporates. So if you wanted beyond equality in your school, all you would have to do would be to email them, go on their website, look for their um, contact and email them and ask them to come to your school. And they literally often will come to the school and they'll do two, sort of two hour workshops or they'll essentially look at your needs, find out what you need and then figure out how they can fit it into your term time and into your program. And then where I live in Australia, there's Tomorrow Man, Tomorrow Woman and Man Cave. But if you went, I want to say go on Twitter, but now it's just a right wing cesspool called X, but If you go on Google and you put in gender facilitation or masculinities facilitation or um, gender equality facilitation in my area and put where you live, you'll find it. Just do a bit of Googling. There are amazing charities, but it's just no one shouting about them because it doesn't make a news story. The news story 
isn't as well no one wants to read about division and unity do they because war gets so much more traction and and also you know as i've said before many times if we're happy if we feel less lonely then we're not going to be on any of the apps as much and we're not going to be buying stuff online and we're not going to be out drinking as much and then eating out as much like we we keep a capitalist society thriving when we keep people unhappy and lonesome and and always in deficit yeah scarcity mentality if you keep people feeling like oh i don't have anyone or i don't have enough or i don't have that new it bag or that car or i don't have that type of relationship or i haven't gone on that kind of holiday if you just constantly make people feel like oh, i haven't got that kind of body i'm not as happy as this person like always like they're striving for more and you teach them that acquisition is the only key whether it's acquiring the amount of lovers that you have or the amount of things that you have or the places that you go, if you teach people that acquisition is the cure, then they'll keep buying stuff, Yeah, even in a cost of living crisis, to fill mm-hmm. the void that you fucking created. We've systemized So you're it. absolutely right. Yeah, you're absolutely right that, it is very, that it's not curious at all that these aren't in every single school and every single no. university where we would be able to help shape the minds of the youth. And I, I think it's important to to own that and to point that out to people because I think it can just feel baffling of like, why are we not, why are the people in power not trying harder to bring us together? Why are they actually succumbing to some of the worst point scoring, humiliating, divisive, segregating tactics mm. possible in front of the kids? It's not that they just haven't thought of these things. It's that yeah. they literally don't serve them. It doesn't serve them. No. I always think about this like, so many people give activists such a hard time for what they ask for and whatever tactics they use for ask for whatever the objective is. And it's always like, people just want, like, it makes me emotional because I'm like, people just want, it take any person, they just want to feel safe, be able to have food on the table, spend time with their family. People genuinely just want like a small, safe, comfortable life. And the amount of noise and things we are fighting for and like anger and movements this like huge amount of effort and sacrifice is actually all just so that people can just have like a peaceful, dignified life and people don't aren't asking for much, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and the reason why our government and the system we live under doesn't give us that is because exactly that is that they can control us if we don't have that. Yeah, we're not looking at them when we're looking at each other. No, the more struggle we're under. Like if men and women are fighting with each other, then we're not looking at the bigger capitalist society. We're not looking at who stands to gain from all of us spending all of our fucking hard-earned money on nonsense that we don't need that's supposed to, like, reinstate our gender. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know? yeah exactly. Whether it's about aesthetic or or where you go A or what you do. Or or, yeah, yeah, exactly. It's so much easier to have us all at war with each other and the rise of the kind of red pill on TikTok, mm-hmm. like the astonishing rides that women are joining into now on the red pill, yeah. you know, like movement. And it's just, it's all just a fucking nightmare. And I, I think the only way to disrupt it and to break it is to show love and empathy. And I have immense love and empathy for men. In 2018, when I, you know, gave a speech at a women's conference, I made that speech about men. Because mm. if we don't seek to understand and diffuse or disarm our oppressor, we are never going to convince them to make way for us to have our own space and our own rights. And I think this unfortunately applies across the board. We cannot just bull our way through as much as we want to. That is a vital part of social justice and getting noticed that we have to make a big noise. But we do at some point have to recognise that all of these people are products of their environment, products of their learning, products of their own fear, products of their own trauma, products of whatever they've seen as the example of how to grow up. And that we're all just people who deep down are like babies who want to feel safe and want to feel loved and want to be able to be allowed to advocate for ourselves. When we're babies, even little boys are allowed to cry and say, I'm lonely, I'm hungry, I need a shit. Mm. And we shame them out of that. We shame all children out of advocating for themselves. So when I now look at people who are infuriating me, I've started to look at them as a baby, not in a patronising way. I start to imagine who they were when they were little and wonder how the fuck they got from that to where they are now spewing so much hatred. 
And it changes the way that I want to engage with that person where I'm like, you're a product of a million things I wasn't there to see you go through Mm. when you were young and impressionable and vulnerable. And this isn't just men. I'm talking about loads of different types of people who go against other people and try to marginalise them. There was once an innocent, happy person who just wanted to reach across to other people there. And that person got, got tainted in some way. And I would now like to find the person who was there before all of this harm went and influenced and poisoned them. And now I'm trying to engage from that place of like, find the human being. Yeah. Don't just point out the perpetrator they've become, which is tempting. It's so hard. So hard. I'm not saying it's easy. I mean, I'm having to picture them as a child in order to do it. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. in my most ungracious and disgraceful moments, like there was still a kid in there who was just acting from trauma because something reminded me of something that happened from school and then I reacted. Like, that's just all of us. Yeah. And the question then becomes, can they meet that? Can they meet that? Can they meet you there at some point? Yeah. That's the next question. And so it's finding the language, the tolerant and investigative language to figure out how you get them back there before someone convinced them that dominating or harming or otherizing was the only way for them to be safe. This is why I think it's so important that there's so many men doing this work with other men because yeah I want to I will my priority in gender equality will always be the people who are harmed the most I will ride for them hard I will also also be there for men who want to meet this work always there's always a space for them but there's a way that men that I know that do this work can reach other men like you're saying can mm-hmm. see them can see those men for who they were how what how they've been corrupted how they've become this way can articulate that, can relate and can help them grow in that moment in a way that I don't think men respond to women. And we could go around all day and talk about why that's fucked, that men don't listen to women when we say this shit. And yeah, it is. Yeah, but but I also also don't really want a man to explain my experience to me either. I just want them to make space for it. I just want them to say, you know what, that was probably uniquely quite difficult because there are things that are uniquely difficult for men in ways Mm -hmm. that we don't spend a lot of time talking about. And so I just want to make sure that we don't just shut them down and just go like, oh, fuck off, because it's harder. This bit's harder for me than it is for you. So I don't want to hear anything you have to say. Your opinion is irrelevant. That's not getting us anywhere. It's just creating a larger, larger, like it's it's now an ocean that's between us. So I just want them to know I'm... I'm I'm here. I'm here as a support. I can't be the one that explains you to you. You have to do your own self-investigation and other men need to step up who are willing to do the work just the way that we are with other women. And I just want men to know that like we do give a shit and we do recognize. Yeah, why do you think we're doing all this? Yeah, we do that we do recognize, but sometimes it's not clear when we're doing all this because of the way that we speak. And so I think it's important to make sure that we're all a little bit putting it out there and I think it's important that they show that back to us that they show us that they give a shit. Well, this is the thing. How many spaces are men seeing also? Like, if you look at the representation of this work, like, how many spaces are men in with women and people of other genders having constructive, compassionate conversations about this stuff? Like, not many. Like, the work I do, I'm lucky that I get to see this happening in facilitation. But how, what percentage of our population are in situations where they're able to look into the whites of the eyes of a woman and have a conversation? Not many. They're seeing all this shit online. They're seeing all this shit on the media, like we just said. So that everyone's defensive. That's why these facilitation spaces are so transformative. Because when you actually get people of different genders in a room to have these conversations, like people have to show up. They can't just bug out and leave like they can online. They can't just throw some pithy phrase back like men are trash and then leave. Like that shit doesn't work in real life. That shit doesn't work in the room. And so when you give people the opportunity and they show up and they can sit and be human with one another, like great shit happens. But the percentage of people who have that access is so low and yet it's so transformative. Well, it's on us to try and change that. <laughs> and people like us. Any teachers yeah. or parents listening, please please organise in your school to get Beyond Equality or a different facilitation organisation into your school, please. Teachers and parents have such amazing access to be able to lobby schools and get them to invite these people in corporations yeah. too we'll all come to you you know one of my friends ben was in like disney one week and then cambridge the next and then a school the next like all we can be in any space you need us to be in and we will be there i love the work that you're doing i love where you're at i love your journey and your growth i resonate with you deeply in so many ways and i am really happy that we finally got to meet 
and sit Me down too. and have this chat all these years later. Long may we continue to share our our trials and our tribulations. And uh, thank you so much for making this time today. Thank you for having me. It's been so nice. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. I Weigh with Jamila Jamil is produced and researched by myself, Jamila Jamil, Erin Finnegan, Kimmy Gregory and Amelia Chapelo. It is edited by Andrew Carson and the beautiful music that you are hearing now is made by my boyfriend, James Blake. And if you haven't already, please rate, review and subscribe to the show. It's such a great way to show your support and helps me out massively. And lastly, at I Weigh, we would love to hear from you and share what you weigh at the end of this podcast. Please email us a voice recording sharing what you weigh at iwaypodcast at gmail.com and now we would love to pass the mic to one of our listeners i weigh my smile and my humor i weigh being a great partner and a good daughter and a great granddaughter and a nice sister i weigh being a good compassionate person who has nothing but good intentions for our world i weigh being myself no matter who is around and I weigh my journey to self-love. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style and you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.